Well, uh, before we begin, can we just thank a couple of people? Uh, first of all, I want to thank the worship band and uh, Eric especially. Don't they do just such a fantastic job every week leading us? I, they, I really, I'm so grateful for a team of volunteers like you guys that love us, that lead us so well, that are so devoted. Uh, and you should see these guys pray before the service as well. It's amazing. And then our tech team as well, who if you were here last week, you know sometimes tech goes sideways. He's hoping the microphone goes today. But uh, I, the techs are the, the unthanked people at the back of the room who they always get looks. Yeah. You got Brian, Greg, Chris, a few more. But they always get the bad looks when things go wrong. And they never get thanked when they make sure that we all look really good up at the front. So incredible. Uh, it's just, it's so good to be together just sitting there this morning worshiping. Uh, I'm reminded of how faithful our God is. We're coming up on a year anniversary of North Aurora opening. Uh, a lot of things have happened. There's been ups and downs, but it, hasn't God been so good to us just kind of bringing things together? So it's good to worship. Hey, well, uh, it's summertime. I don't know about you. I've been really enjoying all the great weather we've been having, some fantastic weather. We uh, have been trying to get out most nights a week and grill something, which I'm a terrible griller, but my kids don't know that. And when you're below the age of 10, you can kind of convince them you're pretty good as long as it's edible, you know? So we've been doing that. But as we're kind of eating all this good food, it's making me miss some of the British food that I used to have in summertime. Now, I know that some of you who know anything about British food are probably like, well, is that really true? Because I've heard British food is pretty bad, which it's true. Most of it is pretty bad. But occasionally, there's these few gems of just fantastic, glorious, unbelievable stuff. I want to show you a couple of my favorites here. So you got fish and chips, of course, down there on the right-hand side, right? Fish and chips, amazing. And the best is when it's wrapped in newspaper, right? That seems like a weird thing to do. For some reason, the news just gives it an extra little bit of goodness. And then we got right there on the bottom left, that's toad in the hole, which sounds extremely British. But it's, uh, it's like a Yorkshire pudding, which the best I can describe you, it's like pancake batter that's baked. And then you put sausages in the middle with like peas and gravy and mashed potato. It's, it's, uh, hey! <laughs> Jeez. And then, of course, we've got scones at the top. Everybody can appreciate a good British scone, right? And what's funny about this is, when I was growing up in England, this wasn't really that much of a thing, maybe if you were in high society, but then Downton Abbey came out, and so British people decided they were going to monopolize on what everybody else thought about England, so now there's tea shops and scone shops everywhere when we go back, but yeah, I miss this stuff. It was a true sacrifice for me. I have to tell you, to leave England and leave some of this behind, I get excited when we go back, but it's not, it's not really a true sacrifice, is it? To, to think about little insignificant things like this. Like sometimes when we think about sacrifice, we think about small things like that. We think about insignificant, meaningless things that we've had to say goodbye to or, or that we don't get to enjoy as much anymore. But it's not real sacrifice. It's not the kind of sacrifice that we see in Scripture, especially not the kind of sacrifice that we see in the passage of Scripture we're going to read today. You know, we've been going through this series on faith in Hebrews 11, looking at the heroes of our faith and asking ourselves this question, what does authentic, transforming faith look like in our lives? And I want to ask you this question, what does true sacrifice look like in our lives? What does true sacrifice look like? Just as a reminder, this letter that we're reading, it was uh, written to Jewish believers early in the church. There was persecution, there was suffering, and these Jewish believers were kind of, they were beginning to doubt and question their faith in Christ and wondering whether they should go back to their Jewish roots because it doesn't seem like this Jesus thing is really working out. But the author of Hebrews wants to encourage them, actually, in your Jewish roots, you have ancestors who they were waiting all their lives to get what you now have. 
So don't give up. Don't turn around because you've finally gotten it. And in particular, last week, we looked at this ancestor of the Jewish people, the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, who in Hebrews and actually throughout all of the Bible, he's held up as this pillar of faith, this amazing man of God. And he wasn't perfect. And in fact, Pastor Brian told us last week in a few different ways, his life was pretty messy. It was a little messed up. He was a man who didn't always move quickly towards what God had called him to. Remember that little detour that he made when God called him out of his homeland and he didn't go straight there? He was a man that made some serious mistakes because he feared for his own life. He lied about his wife, telling people that it was his sister twice, which would have led to some very, very unpleasant things for Sarah. But despite all of his flaws, all of his brokenness, his sin, his messiness, he still held up because ultimately Abraham, despite all of his flaws, was a man who chose to put his trust in God, who ultimately put his hope again and again in the God that had called him out of his homeland. And because of that, God again and again, even despite his sin, affirms him, holds him up, and we're actually told in one of the most important lines of all of scripture that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. It's where we get this idea as Christians that what makes us right in God's eyes is not what we do, it's our faith in him. Because we are imperfect, sinful, broken people and so what we need is faith in a God who can undo all of that. So because of his faith, Abraham had to make a lot of sacrifices. And we're gonna look at the greatest one he was ever challenged to today. He'd already left a home that he knew well. He'd sacrificed his father's household, a steady income, a safe place. You know, the Abraham and his family lived in tents for the entirety of their time in Canaan. Lost all that comfort, sacrificed it. But none of that compares to the sacrifice that God's gonna ask of him today. This is how Hebrews reminds us of the, what is surely Abraham's greatest challenge of faith. It says, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Story that that's referring to is found in Genesis 22. A lot of us know us, Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. And it is an unbelievably difficult story for us to read. You know, a Jewish Nobel laureate and Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, who wrote Night, he, he is a Jewish man, and he said of this story, God was wrong for asking for Isaac, and Abraham was wrong for agreeing to it. And if we are honest, a lot of us can sympathize with Elie, if not agree with him entirely. How could God ask for such a thing? I mean, what do we do with a story like this in our faith? What do we, how do we answer the questions that we have about it? You know, hidden in this story is some really good news. It's hard to believe that, but there is really good news. And it's news that you and I desperately need, and without which, you and I will never be able to sacrifice anything to God. And we don't really pay attention to what this story is teaching. So I want to walk through this account together and look at three things. I want to look at the call of God, the resolve of Abraham, and then the sacrifice of the son. Let's not waste any time because there's a lot there. So let's talk about the call of God. The story's going to start with a test. Now, when I think about tests, I, I hate tests of all kind. I was very glad to be done with school. And when I worked in student ministry, I would share with kids all the time, you know, one day you won't have to deal with all these tests, which is rather naive of me because one way or another, we always get tested on something. 
Uh, one such way for me was when I became an American citizen, I had to take an American citizenship test. And the way that works, if you don't know, they give you, uh, there's a hundred possible questions and they're going to ask you ten of them. So you've got to study and prepare for this test. It's all about American politics, American history, American culture. And uh, it was kind of the first time since having left college that I was having to work as hard to memorize all this stuff. And there's all this pressure on you. And you always feel like, okay, I'm going to have to prove to them that I'm worthy of being an American. What I should have said is, listen, didn't you know that my country founded your country? Just let me in. <laughs> no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. It was really hard. It was tests. I don't like it. We don't like tests. It's uncomfortable. We've got to work on all these things. And what we're told in Genesis 22 was that a test came for Abraham. It says Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, what do you reply to God when he asks that of you? What do you think went through Abraham's mind? It starts by telling us after these things. This is towards the end of Abraham's life. Abraham's 100 plus at this point. He has seen God come through again and again in a variety of ways. God has worked miracles in his life. God has done miracles in the lives of people around him. There's been changing of names. There's been covenants made. There's been navigating sin and mess. But here, after all of that, God asks for something that Abraham probably wouldn't have imagined in a million years. That this son who he was promised his entire life by God, the one who is the embodiment of everything that God has said to him, now God says, I want you to take him to a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. What kind of test is this? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's not a test for God's sake. When we think of tests, you know, a math teacher might give me a test because he wants me to prove that I know what I say I've learned. This isn't that kind of test. God isn't unaware of what's really going on in Abraham's heart and mind. In fact, God knows Abraham better than Abraham knows himself. And that's actually why God is testing him. Because Abraham needs to learn something. God knows. Abraham doesn't. There's a couple of things we can see clearly about this lesson that God wants to teach Abraham. First, God's not done growing Abraham's faith. We might imagine that a hundred-year-old man has learned all the lessons he needs to learn about faith. But for his entire life, God never gives Abraham all the details. He says, leave your home. Abraham says, where do I go? God says, I'll tell you later. God says, I promise you a son even in your old age. And Abraham says, how? God says, I'll tell you later. But now he says, I want you to offer your son. And Abraham might be tempted to say, why? God doesn't tell him. Because God wants to grow his faith as he always has. He wants to teach him in increasing measure. Abraham, you need to lean on me. You need to trust in me, not your own understanding. And it's true for all of us that the journey of faith never ends. No matter how old we are, no matter what we've been through, there is always more that God wants to teach us. None of us have ever arrived at an adequate level of faith. I'm willing to bet that Of all of us in this room, there's a lot of holes in our faith in different places. There's questions, there's doubts, there's burdens, there's pains. There might be sin that needs to be confessed. There might be places where we need to wrestle with some things. God's ongoing work in our lives is to find those things and show them to us. 
so that we can learn to trust. This is why James tells us in his letter in the New Testament, he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know why God's testing Abraham? Because he wants him to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God loves Abraham. He's not done with him and he'll never be done with us either. Second thing is God grows our faith by asking us to do hard things. He asks us to do hard things. Has anything that God has yet asked of Abraham been easy or straightforward? And here God asks him to do something so hard, we might as well call it impossible. Impossible. But you know that to grow your faith, God will ask you to do impossible things. He will find you, he will find the things that you don't think are possible, and he will ask you to trust him with them. Because when God... If God asks us for possible things, where's our trust going to be? Right here. But when he asks us for impossible things, who do we have to go to? Him. Now, I don't like hard faith. I like easy faith. I like when God asks me to do things that I'm like, yes, that sounds great. Missionary trip to Hawaii, yes, let's do it. I like faith that lets me grow at my own pace and confront the things that I want to confront. And I like faith that's comfortable and agreeable and even occasionally permissive. But that faith isn't worth anything, is it? Because that faith doesn't change me. That faith doesn't grow me. It doesn't transform me. See, like diamonds that are created by the most intense pressure, what God wants to do in our heart, it, it requires hard things. It requires impossible things that need the grace of God. Requires us to step out of our comfort zones, to commit to relationships that are difficult and complicated, to be patient in frustrating circumstances, to be thankful and joyful in seasons of loss and suffering. And there's opportunities like that facing us every day if we're watching for them. The last thing that God wants to teach Abraham is that his most precious treasure doesn't belong to him. God asks for his son, his only son whom he loves, we don't have time today to begin unpacking how much Abraham would have loved Isaac. It was everything to him. And here God says, he's not yours, he's mine. Later on in scripture, God goes on to be clear with his people. He gives the law to Moses. And in that law in Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine, he says, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Now, it wasn't exactly like what he asks Abraham here, but there's this sense amongst the people of God as God continues to reveal himself. Everything you have doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. God is the God in the Psalms, we're told, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to him. But we don't like that. We like to think that our possessions and our skills and our reputation, even our children sometimes, they belong to us. And we like to think we're going to shape our kids into who we think they need to be. And we're going to direct our kids in the, the path that we think they, they need to travel. But what our highest priority as parents should be is to shape our children not into who we think they need to be, but into who God has asked them to be. We are stewards, we are caretakers of God's children. He loves them far more than we do. What would it look like in our lives if we had the faith that our possessions, our reputation, our skills, even our children didn't belong to us, they belonged to God? 
Now, as shocking as all this is, what shocks me equally as much is Abraham's response. I want to look at the resolve of Abraham really quick. The resolve of Abraham. Now, I've used this in many sermons. I'm the kind of guy that gets into weird shows, really bizarre shows. And there was one show I watched called Man Vs. Food. Have any of you heard of this show? Okay, good. We've got one person that's like me. I'm great. So Man Vs. Food is about this guy who will travel across America, and he has two challenges that he set for himself. I'm going to eat the most amount of food that a restaurant will give me, or I'm going to eat the spiciest food that a restaurant will give me. And he goes around, and it's just, it's like watching a train wreck. You, you can't not see these unbelievable stories. And in fact, he goes to one restaurant whose peppers were so spicy that the chefs had to use gas masks when they were preparing them. And you watch this guy just take these peppers and eat one after the other. And he, 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 almost immediately, he's weeping, he's sweating. But the resolve, it's, it's like morbidly fascinating to watch this. Now, Abraham has a resolve that is fascinating, doesn't he? His response to what God asks of him. This is what we're told, Genesis 22. He says, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So he went both of them together. See, I don't understand what Abraham does here. He's so resolved to do exactly what God's asked of him. So much so that we're told he woke up early. I want to I just look at three ways that Abraham was, was resolved in his faith to follow God. That first one I just mentioned, he, he rose early. Now given the request, I, I don't understand why you would possibly wake up early on a day like this. If it was me, I wouldn't want to wake up at all. I would just stay there in bed. But not Abraham. He wakes up, he saddles his donkey, he gets everything ready, he cuts the wood, he gets his servants, he sets it all up, and he sets out on a three-day journey with Isaac and his servants. I can only imagine as a father what was going through his heart and his mind. The fear, the questions, the doubt. But do you notice how none of those stop him from doing what God asked of him? This is already a deeply transformed Abraham than the one who set out. Remember when he took that detour? He took the long way around. There's no long way around today. Abraham's going straight there. His faith translated into action. It wasn't theoretical. What about our faith? Is it theoretical? Is it something that we intellectually agree with, but it doesn't move us into action? I'm going to turn the lens on myself here for a moment because it, honestly, it's just easier to be transparent with you. My faith doesn't always move me the way that it should. Sometimes I have what I call a frozen faith where I stand still when I should be walking. What this means is that there's been moments where I've believed God called me to be generous. I would have told you I believe God calls his people to be generous and yet 
I wasn't being generous. I was holding on to my resources. I was holding on to my time. There's been moments where I believed God called me to forgive and extend grace, but if we really examined my life, there'd be far too many moments where I was bitter, where I was angry, and I even slandered other people. There has been moments where I believed God called me to have Seth. I thought I had faith to serve, and yet here I was, never giving my time to people who needed it. Never looking for opportunities in my life where I could lay myself down and support someone else. There's been moments where I believed God called me to holiness, that he wanted me to live a different lifestyle, and yet I didn't want to give up the one that I had. But not Abraham. Abraham's resolve should cause us all to examine ourselves and say, where are we standing still? Where do we have a frozen faith? Where are we putting off the call of God? Now, frozen faith has caused so many people in this world to really ask whether Christians believe what we say we believe. They see us, they see what we preach, and they don't see it in action. And right now, as in all moments of history, the world needs a church that will not stand still, that will not have a frozen faith, but would resolve itself to walk with God in holiness, in purity, in forgiveness, in grace, in mercy, in justice. Abraham's faith also resolved that there was nothing that was off limits to God. Even what was most precious to him. Isaac was everything to Abraham. And I'll tell you now as a a father, if God asked that of my son, I don't know whether I could even listen to him ever again. But Abraham resolved that everything in his life was God's. Let me ask you, is there anything in your life that's off limits to God? Is there anything that's non-negotiable? It's an important question because functionally speaking, whatever we tell God is non-negotiable, that's our real God. That's the real thing that we put our hope in and our trust in and our highest allegiance to. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a hard passage of scripture, isn't it? Hyperbole, Jesus is saying there shouldn't be any comparison between our relationship with anything else and him. He should be the highest. He should be the first one. And you know what? In Jesus' day, when Jesus said that, a lot of people walked away from him because they didn't want to do that. People would come up to him and when he would say this, when he would ask this, told people, don't bury your father, come follow me, come now. People, they didn't want to surrender it. It causes a lot of people to walk away from Jesus today too, doesn't it? When God asks us for things that we consider non-negotiable, we walk away. Do you know why it's such a poor choice to withhold something from God, to to say that something's non-negotiable? Do you know what the sad irony is? Is because whatever you're not willing to put on the altar has the potential to enslave you. Think about it. When your ultimate hope is in a, a person or a set of circumstances, you will do anything to keep it. You don't want to lose it. You're driven to do whatever it takes. And you're driven to love people not for their benefit, but for yours. This is why C.S. Lewis says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. 
insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. There's so much wisdom in being willing to put what's most precious to you on an altar and say this belongs to you, God. Because faith tells us that what is precious to us is better in God's hands than it is in ours. Lastly, uh, Abraham's faith resolved to believe that God was good even when he couldn't see all the details. Along this journey, we get glimpses of this. We get glimpses of what's going on in Abraham's mind. He's traveling a three-day journey and then up a mountain with his son. And what he tells to his servants when he reaches the, the mountain where he's going to go up, he says to them, wait here. I and the boy are going to go worship and we'll come back to you. We'll come back to you. Now, we might be inclined to think, well, maybe Abraham's just not being totally honest with them because he doesn't want to say what's about to happen. He doesn't want to say what he's about to do. But Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac even from the dead. And not only that, but there's this beautiful moment where Abraham and Isaac are walking up and Isaac can tell that something is wrong. Because he says to his father, where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say? He says, son, the Lord himself will provide a lamb for us. This is not Abraham blowing smoke. This is not Abraham just trying to keep it all under wraps until the last second. This is genuinely what Abraham believes. Isaac's coming back down with him somehow. He doesn't know how, but he knows he's coming back down. God is going to show up and provide somehow. I don't know how, but he is because he's good. That's who he is. That's what he's done my entire life. Do you see how much resolve Abraham has in the character of God? That he does not allow the commands of God to be something that troubles him. He has more trust in God's goodness than his own. He believes that God will uphold his promises. That God has promised to bless the whole world through Isaac. And so that's what he's going to do somehow. Now, when I read that, this was maybe the part that convicted me the most when I read this this week. When I was praying about this. I... I long for faith like that. I need faith like that. That when I go through horrible moments, painful moments, difficult moments, I can turn around and I can say, but God is good. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to abandon me. He's not going to let this be the end of the story. He's going to care for me. He's going to provide. He's worth my trust. That's the kind of faith that God wants to grow in us. But to receive it, to grasp it, we need something else. We need the sacrifice of the son. So Genesis 22, towards the end of the story, starting in verse 9, when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bind Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So here we are, Abraham and Isaac, they go to the top of the mountain, they get together. It's actually gonna go through with this. 
Isaac ends up on the altar. And I just, I want to point something out to you. Because Isaac's showing is his faith too. We normally think of Isaac as like a maybe six, seven, eight-year-old boy in the story. But remember some of the other details. Isaac had carried the wood for the burnt offering up. That's not a six, seven, eight-year-old boy to carry that much burnt wood. It would have been a considerable amount of wood for an offering. And not only that, but he's gone on a three-day journey with his hundred-year-old plus father. So Abraham's not taking care of Isaac on that journey. The truth is Isaac's probably closer. We don't know exactly, but probably closer to about 20. Changes the story a little bit, doesn't it? You think that a 100-plus-year-old man could have forced a 20-year-old man onto an altar? You think he could have bound him against his will? Who put, him, who put himself on the altar? It's Isaac. Because he has the same faith as his father. He trusts his father. He was obedient to his father. And Abraham comes to move to kill Isaac. He drops a knife, and an angel of the Lord screams out, Stop! Don't do it! Don't kill your son, Abraham. Don't lay a hand on him. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God and that you won't withhold your son, your only son. Can you imagine the feeling in Abraham in that moment? Can you imagine the tears that ran down his face? It's probably the fastest knife drop in history. It makes me weep thinking about it, that God showed up and Abraham knew God was exactly who he believed him to be. God knew this the whole time. He knew Isaac was never going to be sacrificed, but Abraham needed to know. He needed to know that God was good, that he provides, that he was worth all of Abraham's trust. God knew that from the start, and now Abraham does too. But why? Why would God teach him in such a painful way? I know we're running close on time, but this is where the story gets really good. Just take a step back with me for a minute. This is what God says at the end. He says, I just want to read a little bit of it. Abraham calls the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And goes on to say that I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth because you've obeyed my voice. Now let's take a step back for a minute this ending to this story. God in his sovereign power knows what he's going to do to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's line, through his descendants. He knows that. Abraham doesn't know that, but God does. And God knows that this isn't going to be the only time in history where a son, an only son, whom a father loved, would have to be carried up a mountain to be sacrificed. Which of the son do we know of who would be called? Which of the son do we know of who carried the wood for his own sacrifice up a hill? Which of the son do we know of who placed himself on an altar in obedience to his father who he trusted and loved? And in fact, you know Mount Moriah where this all happens? Do you know where that ended up being? Well, it didn't exist in Abraham's day, but as time passed on, that area became known as Jerusalem. And Mount Moriah is the mountain where the temple was built. Which other son do we know who was tested at the temple mount? Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is God's son, his only son whom he loved. 
except he wasn't spared. You know what this story is really all about? It's not about Abraham, it's about Jesus. Tim Keller says, we have this story so that we have some true human understanding of what the father did with the son. God is painting a picture to Abraham. He's painting a picture for us. This is what I'm going to do. You want the whole nations of the earth to be blessed? I'm going to have to do this, Abraham, with my son. And just as Abraham's faith was vindicated that day, that God proved who he was, it was going to be vindicated even after Abraham's death. Because Abraham believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. And who does God raise from the dead? His son, his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Paul writes in Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In this is love, not that we've loved God, but he has loved us and gave his son. We start out in the story by saying, we got some moral questions. How could God possibly ask for something like this? I can't help but get to the end of the story and have the question, how could God give something like this? How is it that it wasn't Isaac on the altar, that it was God's only son? We can say to God now because you have not withheld your son, your only son who you love. Now I know that you love me. Now I can trust you. Now I can see. What does true sacrifice look like? A life that holds nothing back because of trust in the Father. It looks like Jesus. And friends, I pray that in the depths of our soul, as a church, as a family, as followers of Christ, that this story would kindle in us today and every day that follows the faith that God is worth our trust. Because he did not spare his only son. I pray that we would see in Jesus what we need to have a faith that does not hold back, that does not shrink back, that does not stand still. If you've not come to him yet, come to him today. Come today, because he's waiting for you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever prays for him, God delights to give him his spirit. God wants to teach you the same thing that he taught Abraham that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to reflect on this story that undoubtedly troubles us. We have questions about it. How could you ask such a thing? But Lord, how could you give such a thing? You knew what Abraham didn't know. Father, we pray that like Abraham, we would have the resolve to not stand still, to not pull back, but to put what is most precious to us on the altar. God, we can sacrifice anything to you because you have given everything to us in the person of your son. Transform our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.